Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is someone you may know best as the host of The Toray Show, also author of the book Nothing Compares to You, which covers the life of Prince. It is known tennis fan, a man who whenever he likes my tweet, it brings a smile to my face. Welcome <laughs> on to the show, Toray. Toray, welcome, my friend. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, man. I'm always excited to talk about tennis. Yeah, and I want to unpack that from the get-go. Talk to me about your tennis background. What attracts you to the sport? I mean, it's everything. It's, you know, once I was filling out some form, I think you're, like, logging into, like, Hulu or something, like, where they're, like, getting to know you, whatever, and they're like, what are your favorite sports? And I clicked basketball, football, and something else. And when I got through the list, I didn't click tennis, and I was like, because I don't think of tennis as, like, a sport sport it's like religion it's like everything (laughs) like I started playing at six I remember my father said I'm coming home with a very special gift for you and your sister I was like okay what is it and he had these little wooden green and white tennis rackets for I'm six she's five and at the moment I was like this is not a special gift like I thought it was going to be a Batman something car something but it was the most incredible gift. He loved tennis, never had a lesson, but played every night, played singles into his 80s. I think he had one, just used like the Eastern grip for serving, backhand, like everything. Um, but we, my sister and I were having lessons. I never went to any other summer camp, but tennis camp. Um, you know, I played junior tournaments in New England throughout my, from age 10 through 18, I didn't make the college team at Emory. Um, They're which, very good. Yeah, you know, it, it, to this day, it hurts me because <laughs> the first day he had a tournament for the recruits. And first out, I was playing the number one freshman recruit. And I lost one set and I lost to him 7-6. And I was like, okay, this is good. This is good, right? And in the consolation round, I played the number two recruit. You may have noticed had lost his first round match. I lost to him 7-6. So I'm like, okay, this is clearly good. I am clearly right in the mix with the top recruits. So you got to take me, right? And he didn't take me, and it it broke my heart. But I came back to the sport uh, about 10 years later, got back to playing tournaments, taking lessons. To this day, I play every day. Um, I take lessons. I play I think I played like eight tournaments last year, singles and doubles. Um, No USTAs, no UTRs. Some of the guys I play with play UTRs, but um, just like local tournaments in Brooklyn. I play mostly at Fort Greene in Brooklyn, in New York. And people in New York should know this is one of the most (laughs) competitive communities of players, like definitely in New York, maybe anywhere in the country. There's easily 20 guys and a few women who are like former college players maybe touch the tour for a minute and like want to go out in the morning or the middle of the day and grind and like you know drill and like play an intense set and um it's just an extraordinary community to be a part of and like i am almost 52 and i have never played as well as I can play right now. Um, so it's, uh, and, and never really felt like I understood the game more than I do now. So it's been this sort of exciting 
growth in just the depth of my understanding emotionally, intellectually, tactically. Um, yeah, it's it's I, 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 I love it so much. I have many follow ups off of that. Two I'm going to focus on here because I do want to talk about our contenders, obviously, as we look at yeah. this Australian Open. The first is in my day, the reputation of USTA Eastern New England is that respectfully, yeah. it was one of the weaker districts because, again, respectfully, all the good players from those districts, they no. leave and go to Florida. And let's, so... let's say this. Let's say this. First of all, um, I didn't play in the East. I played in New England. The East was solid because you had a lot of New Yorkers with money, right? <laughs> yeah. it, you know, and a New but York. But they all tradition. go to Florida. D- yes, I-, I grew up in New England, which okay. yes, I know respectfully. <laughs> one of the weaker sections in the country. We knew this. We had a good time because you Perfect. had it was six states. You had to drive. To, you had to play at least one tournament out of your home state to qualify for a ranking. So, you know, my mom, you know, drove me several hours to a New Hampshire, a Connecticut, Vermont. We played this tournament in Maine. It might have been a four or five hour drive. It was called the, at least we called it the Slush Puppy Open. I'm sure it had one of these <laughs> like grandiose championships names, whatever. Sure. But like. The, it, this is in the in the 80s okay nowadays you can go into a 7-eleven or whatever and like make your own slush in the 80s it did not happen it was always behind the counter except here this was a tournament sponsored by slush puppy and there was a slush puppy machine in the room and whenever you weren't playing you were over there making your own slush mixing flavors mixing ju- whatever and like this was one of the major tournaments of the New England <laughs> Lawn Tennis Association calendar for juniors. Like it, it, this was like our Wimbledon. Like everybody would show up because you had this added benefit. It would the draws would be like sixty four, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there were there used to be a magazine called uh, I think it was Tennis Week. Maybe you remember it was a newspaper that came out every two weeks. Okay. Right. It was before my time. It, it was a little it was a little it was kind of artful. It wouldn't it wasn't like newsy. It would be like, this is why Yvonne Lendl is so great. It's kind of like the New York Review of Books, but all about tennis. <laughs> OK. And I remember read I was like ranked like 20th in the 16th in New England that year. And I remember there now was a article that said. No, but the article said, like, you know, if you're like number five, the sentence was, if you're like number five in California, you get like basically like a lot of love and attention. If you're number 20 in New England, you get nothing. And I was like, <laughs> I am literally number 20 in New England. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I mean, like, you know, I loved my junior tennis experience and I guess in some ways I'm trying to recapture it by going out and playing a bunch of tournaments uh, every year now. Do you remember who was number one in your section at the time? Because for me it was, I mean, I'm not that far removed, but like Jack Murray was the guy for 1995s in Southeast Michigan. Since we were like nine years old, he Mm. was just always the best. And I feel like something. Well, you know, interesting you say that. I, re- I mean, I don't remember that many of the names. I remember a, 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 a guy named Peter Bai, who was okay. fantastic, top ranked, might have been a top ranked player in the 12s, 14s, something like that. That that name sticks in the memory for some reason. But deeper than that, 
just the age group just above me when I was in the twelves. He was in the 14s. Was Al Parker Jr. Okay, you know, sure, was, Georgia, the, the greatest junior in the history of America. Oh, that's 12s, 14s, 16s, and 18s, and more gold balls than anybody else, singles and doubles. And then had a good college career, not a great college career, and then had no pro career to speak of. And when I got into the freelance writing world. I was thinking about like, what can I write for Tennis Magazine? Because I want to do something for Tennis Magazine. And I was like, you know what? What happened to Al Parker Jr.? And I pitched it to them. They loved it. And so then I had to track down Al and I found him and I wrote him this letter. Please let me interview you, basically. And he's like, okay. And I went down and spent a couple of days in Georgia with him. And it was really cool. I met his parents. They were lovely. Um, had a great time with him. And bas- basically, you know, the juniors was fun. It was a community. All the guys are like around his mom's van and like in between the matches, it's fun. The pros, he said, is lonely as hell. And like, it's not fun. And he remembered being in like Singapore, or the Philippines or something like that. And like the guy serves, kick serve to him. It hits a rock. It goes into the crowd. There's 10 people in the crowd. He's ranked like 400, 500. He's like, this is not fun, right? And the tour is not fun in the way that the juniors is. And he's, his back was really, really bothering him as well. And so he quit. And now he's very fulfilled in his life. And they have no idea that he was the greatest. But I was, you know, I was, I was happy to uh, bring that story to life, you know, because like, what happened to the greatest junior that ever? He didn't make it on the pro. You know, you would have thought, but no. But um, lovely guy. I'm very happy with where his life is now. That's my strike zone because I, I knew he won Kalamazoo. I looked it up. 1986 Kalamazoo champion. Was an All-American at Georgia. That one I did know. And yeah, th- there's so it's funny because I know my listeners will be like, Alex, you didn't correct him. Not the best junior in U.S. boys history. There are some other like so Vanya King's brother, Philip King, was a back to back Kalamazoo champion. Ninety nine, two thousand. Jack Sock went back to back as well. Like these guys were. I mean, obviously, McEnroe was freaking McEnroe. Billy Martin, the UCLA coach. But nobody else can say they were number one in all four of the age groups. I mean, I think there probably are some guys who can say that. That's what I'm saying. It's like there are some some players who I'm blank. But like so Mackie McDonald got injured at one point, but 12s, 14s. I think he missed out on the 16s, but like 18s, he was the guy in my age group. Like okay. always Gage Brimer, another one on that list who was always in the top five. Like even Jack Murray. Than number one. I understand that the yeah. list is a little bit broader than I'm making it, but I still think he has more gold balls than anyone. You know what? I owe you a follow-up because I know a guy who can answer that question. And okay, let, let me talk to my gold ball guy and we'll okay. see if we can find you an answer. But the last follow-up, and then we'll get to the, the Australian open list as much as the Eastern districts may struggle in the juniors, Word on the street is that is the most competitive adult tennis you will find in the country. And it's interesting to hear you talk about sets because I'm now at an age 27, just for context for you, where we are still playing. You know, I always and what I have gathered from these first 10 minutes is 
if it's a binary system, one zero, I always say you're a one. You are a tennis player. This is what I've learned from this background. Sure. Um, and so I think this is a struggle that will resonate with you. We used to play ground stroke games to 21 because you don't want to serve. Like, let's just play some physical points. Let's really sweat. Let's get into it. Now we're at the age where we're like, you know what, let's do 15 because 21 is a little too long. And like, you know, if someone goes down 17, 11, they're tanking the next four because they just don't have the comeback in them. You started referencing you play sets. That yeah. to me, like that's where we draw the line where it's like, no, no, no. Only zeros in this binary system play sets because they what think that's about? how you get better. I always say ground stroke games is how you actually like you're okay, only wait. serving in match play. And how often are you actually doing match play is my question to you. Well, well, I am practicing so that I can be good in tournaments where okay. we don't play baseline games. We play matches. Now, I fully respect the baseline games and I definitely play a lot of baseline games and will notice 30, 45 minutes of a baseline game, whether we generally in our community, we generally play to 11 uh, I couldn't imagine tanking if I was down 17, 11, and I could still fucking come back. Like, like <laughs> But just our community, for whatever reason, 11 is generally the number that we all agree upon. But, but a lot of times I notice the structure of baseline game points doesn't really mimic the structure of serve points, right? Like, I mean, beside the fact that the return is either the first or second most important shot in the game, right? The, the serve, whatever you want to argue, the serve is the most important. The return is either second or first. So you're not practicing that. I do concede that, like like I said, when I'm playing 30, 40 minutes of baseline games, it is a much harder cardio workout than, you know, when we take 30 to 40 seconds in between each point. But there's the, the sets thing really matters because your gate you're bringing in the breaking serve that whole thing you know what you do at 30 15 or what have you the just the structures of points that come from starting to serve here versus there uh, uh, several years ago i think about six years ago i was doing mostly drills right just like through a six-month period and um, the tournament came and I lost in the first round to a very good player, but something was, I was like, something was off. You weren't really on emotionally. There's an emotional fire that you have to have when you're playing sets, when you're playing in a tournament, which you have to practice outside the tournament. Um, I think there's sort of an intellectual thing of like just mapping out the, um, the momentum and the emotional ups and downs of a set. And I was like, you know, why am I practicing baseline games and drills and we most of my guys we practice sets and even when i want to work on something what does it matter that i can do it in a drill when there's no stakes i want to do it in a point when it's like this matters i want to beat you and you want to beat me and um you're practicing you know all the, all the little things so glass <laughs> i'll give you the glass half empty full i'm laughing because it's not the nicest thing we, my friends and I have a pack, and again, we're all late 20s, early 30s, where we say, hey, when the ground stroke games go to 11, that means we've lost it. And so, like, we agree, never allow that to be the case, because if you, so that means the cardio. That you you it, think it's that little? It's too short? Yeah, it's the cardio. Like, you got to make it past 11. 11 is, like, the threshold you have to push through, because it's just too, like, a, a ground stroke game to 15 
is 20 minutes of intense consecutive cardio. And you're right. That's the difference between the ground stroke games and set play. And to your point, and this is the glass half full, I agree. There are certain things you just can't replicate without playing a set, without feeling the pressure of, hey, it's 30-40, and it was love 40, and you hit two stupid shots. And now you're going to feel a little bit of pressure in that 30-40 moment. My counter is, and again, I guess this gets back to the binary thing, 1-0. With the level, I'm not playing former D1 college tennis player. If I do, then the lack of set play is really going to hurt. Most of the people I hit with now, you know, they're, they're not Pete Sampras. They're not Roger Federer. That serve's not coming in at 120. It's coming in at 90. And for me, okay. like, the return, as long as I'm playing ground stroke games and points, the biggest thing is movement, not losing the movement. The side to side and, yeah. you know, the the first ball moving forward for an approach shot is always the first thing that goes when you don't play for a while. And I think the the repetitive and consecutive is probably the better word nature of a ground stroke game. It's just better for getting your rhythm back than the constant starting and stopping of the set play. Yes. And I think in our community, most people want to play a baseline game or two and then go into now we're going to play. And, 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 you know, I can respect that. And there's certain guys, you know, there's some guys and I may be one of them. I think I'm one of them. I'm going to be at a certain level of intensity and ability when we're drilling and when we're playing baseline games. And then when we're playing for real, like I- I'm going to get to my highest level. And you're, you know, and I know certain guys who are like, they don't really even want to warm up. We like tap the ball for three minutes and now we want to serve it up because they're just like, I want to compete. And they're like Rams. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Like, I want to like go to war with you. Um you know, it's, it's, it, but you know, uh, you know, I'll test out playing longer 15, 21. I mean, like, I understand the amount of cardio you're talking about. When I say play 11, we'll do 30 or 40 minutes of games to 11. Mm-hmm. So it's still a long stretch of time. Um, but yeah. Yeah. We'd also, and maybe instead of set, see, I like the half and half. We do 10 point tie breaks. So the super breaker, because it's just sure. a little bit quicker than as long as, you know, the sets I mean, it, and the rotation. It, it, but baseline games, do they not create generally different structures of points than you encounter when you start with a serve and a return? It doesn't, it's not an equal good question. replication of what we're, like we say it is, but then I'm like, it's not. So, but I think fundamentally it comes down to what are you looking for? Because you're right. There are different foundations of points, but fundamentally when I step on the court, especially with, you know, we are very competitive, the people who I like to hit with, with one another. And sometimes if the sets come out, then it's just like, no one wants to deal with the aftermath of that. We're past that point of our lives. So, you know, we, we try to keep it away, that. but <laughs> no, because so again, I, these people, I played club tennis at Michigan. We were talking about this before we started the show and we were fortunate enough to win nationals my senior year. And we Amazing. worked really hard to do that. And for Amazing. me, I was like, I'm retired from 
from competitive tennis. I know how much I wanted that. And I don't need, I don't want to want like that ever again, because it hurt uh, the other times. Um, And so I've put that past aside. That said, when I step on the court now, the point is to get the workout, the cardio. And as we established earlier, I just, the consecutive nature of ground stroke points, the fact that rallies do go a little bit longer when you start with a feed as opposed to a serve. Those are all pluses in my, at, at this point for me. Okay. I mean, yeah. No, I mean, I I respect it. I mean, like, I'm still on a quest to see how good I can be at this thing, and That's what I like that means putting it all together um, in a in a serving context. So shout out to your mindset because that's fascinating. I think my problem is I've accepted I'm never going to be as good as I was that final year of like my fresh that of my fresh my first semester senior year, I was so good. I like I remember my good. older brother came to one of the events we played. Shout out to my family for always showing up and he came up to me he's like, "Alex, like what?" Like, when did this happen? I was like, Aww. dude, I have a job. Like, this is what I'm doing senior year. Like, I know what, like, let's roll. Um, And it was very fun. And like, I just, I think once you take like a year off, you lose that movement and then you're never going to get it back. And then you just get angry with yourself. And so you play ground stroke games try in, in, uh, in the quest to get that top form back. I want you to come to New York one day. And oh, oh, and oh! If we played, I feel confident. Um, no, that you'd win. Oh, and oh, yeah. That's just sorry. I like talking smack. This now yeah, you've oh, opened no, but up. You're, the the, you're, you're, but you're saying you'll beat me. Oh, and oh, twentieth in New England. Come on. <laughs> well, but but I am way better than that kid. I would. Oh. I today I would destroy that kid that I was. Okay, you want to know the other? We're really opening up the can of worms, and then I swear we'll get to the contenders. Yeah. I get guilty now because like. I don't want to beat someone that badly. So here was the experience is oh, yeah. in my, in a prior job, one of my co-employees said, Oh, I just started playing tennis and like, Oh, we want I want to hit, I want to hit, I want to hit. And I was like, look, I'm happy to hit with you, whatever. He's like, no, like, I think I could beat you now. Like, let's play a match. And I was like, you can't beat me. Like, I like, that's not what we should do if we hit. And he's like, no, we're going to go. We're going to play a match. I bet you lunch. I can get three games. And I was like, I was oh. like, uh, all right. And so like, <laughs> Just to send a quick message, I went up 6.030 fast. And then I was like, <laughs> all right, like, who is this fun for? Like, it's not worth it anymore. And like, I honestly sometimes – he's never going to listen to this. I feel bad playing my older brother because for most of our lives, he was better than me. And then and his different. going into his senior year of high school, my sophomore year, I hit puberty, and he hasn't been better since. And, like, I kind of feel bad. I'm like, I don't want to beat you. Like, who's that fun for? Why do you not want to beat your brother? No, anyone else I love destroying. Little brother, crush. You know, but I, older brother, feel see, bad. Part of what you are alluding to that I'm continuing to try to stoke and work on is the emotional approach to a match. Okay. And I saw it really clearly the other day. I actually um, had I had a day where I played two matches. I played at the U.S. Open in the morning and then I played in Brooklyn in the evening, right? Both indoors. This is about three weeks ago. And the guy I played in the morning was not as good as the guy I was playing in the evening. Um, but for some reason, the guy I played in the morning beat me. And part of it was that my emotional state was more like, let's see how you are. Let's try to really be aggressive on the backhand. Like these kind of very 
passive internal things. Be the best player that you can be. And he beat me and I was really upset about it. And so when I went to play in the evening against the better player, I was like, I need this victory because I can't have lost twice today. And this guy usually beats me, but like, I I can't, I can't. And I'm like, I need this. And I hadn't really gone into a match with that sort of emotional fuel, not in a long time. And, um, and I beat him and I was a little surprised at like how the fuel really powered me. So you're not bringing any of that to baseline games. It's just never going to (laughs) get the pressure and the importance to you. See, I think against people I know, that is. Now, playing sets against people I know, it's, I think it's the other level of pressure because I still associate with the past things. When it's a random person, I have no problem beating them in a set because that's different. No, I, I'm want, not gonna I, I want you to come. It's, it, I don't say this as a no, challenge. No, 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 no. This is a formal challenge. No, but I don't, I don't mean it that way. I mean, as a, like, as a friend, I want yeah. you to come to Brooklyn okay. and we'll have a great time playing for an hour or two and like just experience, you know, I mean, like I have a, you, this is, this is, look, you're young. One thing you don't see ahead, right, is after, after 35, 40, it's very hard to make new friends. Okay. You will, if God forbid you get, I don't know if you're married or not. God forbid you get married and get divorced. It will be easier for you to find a new spouse than for you to make new friends, right? But through tennis, I have made lots of new friends and constantly keep, you know, and the interaction that you have with somebody on a court, you you know, you really learn about that's a way of, of, of conversating with them, right? And you gain respect for them and you just sort of see who they are. So, you know, I have that conversation with all these different guys and a few women, and it's like, it's a really interesting way to interact with somebody. So now that we've had this conversation, you know, like, let's go out and play and have that conversation. Now, I, the only street cred I have with my friends, we once went on, we call it our hitting trip, our yearly hitting trip of club tennis alums. Where do and you go? We change up the city every year, but we were in Miami. And so I, you know, finding a court isn't always the easiest and i was like hey like this is my job not uh, humble brag here it's like let me text the miami coach and just see if we can go out on and like because we've done some stuff with them like i think they'll be willing and they were like oh yeah of course like come hit like they'll be open we'll leave it open for you and i did that in another city as well i think my the only gift i have in life is the ability to find a free court in any city that i'm in and i'm like i that's the one thing i can handle and so i bring that up to say columbia tennis is building an indoor outdoor facility well, they're, they're going to have six indoor courts, and then on the roof of those six indoor courts are going to be six outdoor courts. I think that facility is opening okay. fairly soon. I think that's where we play our challenge match, even though it's not a challenge. Uh, I mean, sure. Um, I don't sure. know how we, close we'll Columbia is. Sure. Yeah, exactly. This is it's, my hypothetical. It's relatively it's relatively far away from me, but I mean, like, you know, I'll travel to go play tennis. But I mean, like, if you come here, um, and I don't know how often you come here, we should go to the National Tennis Center. We can go oh. to the U.S. Open and play. We cannot go to Roland Garros. We cannot play at Wimbledon. We cannot play on Rod Labor. We can go to the U.S. Open for a very reasonable court fee 
and play tennis. And it's 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 an amazing experience to go to like the high church of American tennis and play. Um, I love that. That is a trump card. Well played. I'm in. No, uh, lock it in. Uh, yes. All right. It's on my to do list. With that said, also on my to-do list is to hear your top five contenders as we look at the men's singles portion of this 2023 Australian Open draw. Now, again, I didn't ask you beforehand to have a specific top five list, so if it's slightly out of order. There's not, there's, we, there's not really five. Okay, so start right there. Is it there's Novak Djokovic, Delta, everyone else? Uh, I think Nadal is still... You know, six and one half dozen to Djokovic, maybe 51, 49 to Djokovic, maybe. But like that redounds to like, who's got what on what day? Um, I keep I still have visions. Of, I mean, I got up at what was it, two or three in the morning to watch Nadal and Medvedev. And my wife passed by at like six in the morning. And she's like, how's it going? I'm like, it's going terrible. Right. This is just for the turn. It's going fucking terrible. Why did I put myself through? And I like Medvedev. Then we can talk about that. It's been a deep emotional curve to come around to actually respecting and liking Medvedev because I hated him at first. But I mean, Nadal is my heart. I love Nadal. Right. I use uh, I use the pure arrow for uh, a long time until very recently. I switched to pure drive. But like, you know, I was wearing his sneakers like he is my guy. I love him. And um, to see him getting pummeled the way he did through the first, what, two and a half sets, it was like, this is this is painful. Like, when does this ha- is this the end of Nadal? And then the turn. And it's like, you know, it's like it's like in the movie where the hero is like pinned and like everything is going wrong. And it's I mean, you know, if you wrote that script of that match, you know, you wouldn't believe it as a Hollywood movie. So it, it, Nadal can do that also to Djokovic. He can do that to anybody. So you can never count him out. Djokovic, obviously, still the number one player of the last decade, without a doubt, um, and still at that level. Um, you know, Medvedev showed us in that last half of the year that he can be the greatest player in the world if he wakes up on the right side of the bed. I mean, like, the, it's a gigantic serve, and the guy's like a freaking octopus on the baseline. And, like, you want a 30-shot point? No problem. You want to, you know, you want me to run down your cross-court and hit it cross-court where you can't even get? Like, no problem. Like, the guy can reach an insane level. Um, I imagine Rude will assert himself at the tip top of the world at some point but he hasn't yet in terms of fully breaking through so i mean like you know to me rude is look a little bit down the road it's really nadal Djokovic, and maybe med if maybe but well let's start with nadal because i think it's an interesting argument and here's a fun fact for you obviously since 2007 there have been 16 australian opens played how many times has rafa made the quarters or further in those 16 australian opens 16. 14 of 16. The years he didn't do it, 2013 and 2016. But he's made six consecutive since not making it in 2016, a year where there were a healthy amount of injury issues. Here's the thing, though. That's what I would point to is the injury issues he's coming off of and the form we saw him in the end of that 2022 season. And I know he's overcome those sorts of things before, but I like to make clubs. And one of the things I look at, 
Tennis Abstract, which is a website and has all these statistics yeah. available. And yeah. you can look up players, you know, they have the top 50 stats leaderboard, hold percentage, how frequently they're holding serve, break percentage, how frequently they're breaking serve. I like to rank players. Are, are you top 10 in both categories? Top 15, top 20, top 25. Usually the players that are, are the eight to 12 best players in the world. Rafa yeah. Nadal for the first time in his career was not a top 25 clubber to end the 2022 season. His hold percentage, how frequently he's holding serve, fell significantly last year. You look for Rafa, he held serve just, you know, for him, 83.3% of the time. And you fold in the Mm. matches that he played to start this 2023 season. He's now floating right around 80 for the last 52 weeks. Like That is a significant number that is a significant decrease i know it's only two to three percent in reality but that two to three percent makes all the difference the other thing i would say quickly is he is still a top 10 returner of all you know on the the atp tour but he used to be the unequivocal number one or two him and djokovic would be over 30 percent which is when you're over 30 percent you're historically exceptional over the last 52 weeks He's still been better than 95% of the tour, but he's in that 28% range, which is really good, but not elite of the elite. And given the dip off in the serve and the dip off from best returner of all time to just very good, like I think you have to knock him down a peg below Djokovic. Um, sure. I mean, sure, sure. Y- yeah. D- yeah, Djokovic is on paper a hair above nadal or a hair more likely to win it all than nadal sure but i mean like that it's to me not statistically significant enough to be able to say to say i'm going to bet on djokovic over nadal if i if i and i may um go to a site and place a bet which you know i'm no stranger to doing, I, I would have to bet on a future of, of both of them. I wouldn't be able to pick one or the other. Well, right now, according to our friends at DraftKings, Novak Djokovic, minus 110. Yeah. He's the favorite yeah. against the entire field. And it was funny. I was a little tipsy What's at a New Year's, my cousin's New Year's wedding, and yeah. he was asking me for good tennis bets. And I said, yeah. Whatever joke, I think Djokovic was plus 125 at the time. I was like, take it. Oh, you nice. have him plus odds, take it. It's the best yeah, bet in tennis. And he took it. Right now, Rafa's plus 1,400, 14 to 1. He's third. And second is Medvedev. Plus 14. Yeah. Plus he's 1,400? Yeah, he's 14 to 1 odds. Really? I yeah. wonder what they know if they think this injury is. is that's that doesn't that does to be third and he's plus 1400 well so here's the thing it comports with the eye test which is that you watch the demon hour match the nori match many of his matches to end the season it's not that he's not still better at tennis than everyone else in my opinion Mm. it's that physically some of the other guys in the field have caught up like medvedev's a monster physically cam nori's a monster physically like these guys can just last the four plus five plus hours it takes now because they're in the prime of their careers. And with all due respect to Rafa, statistically, he's not in a way that Djokovic really still is. And not that I'm 
want don't want to hear more thoughts from you on Rafa, but you look at the numbers for Djokovic. I don't know if, how aware you are of how good he has been. Forty-seven and seven over his last fifty-two weeks, he's winning eighty-seven percent of his he, matches. His career average is eighty-three and a half. Djokovic is incredible. For uh, greatest player of all time, it yes, sure, yeah, a hundred percent. We can make that case. Um, the Nadal stats are interesting. I think Nadal still has tremendous. He he gets up more for the bigger tournaments. The bigger tournaments matter to him more, um, and he shines more in those epic moments of. New York, Paris, obviously, Wimbledon and and Australia. Um, And so if we're mixing statistics from what he did in in the rest of the weeks, the other 48 whatever weeks, I'm like, well, more than that, because it's two weeks for the majors. But what you do the math, I'm not that guy. I'm a right (laughs) math. I'm not a math guy. That's my son. Um, But Nadal is really special. In those moments, Djokovic is as well. Uh, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, it's it's it, you know I I notice. I mean, yeah, on on the site that I look at, Nadal's plus eleven hundred, which I think is is insane, unless they are aware of an injury that I am not aware of. Um, Kyrgios is also at a plus eleven hundred, which is absolutely insane. That's too high. Any, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Well, any money you, I mean, it should be plus ten thousand. He's not going to win the fucking Australian Open. Not in singles. <laughs> um, you know, Pass. I just don't see it. I think Sinner is at plus 1,400, which is really interesting. I think Sinner will become a Grand Slam winner and more than once. I agree. Is it this time? I don't know. I don't think so, but maybe. Yeah. No, I. so he's on my honorable mention the other names I would throw at you quickly, because uh, I know obviously I want to let you go soon. Medvedev, who is second right now on DraftKings, he's plus fi- yeah. uh, fifty. He's plus five fifty, so five and a half to one odds. Um, here's just a fun stat for you. He's played since the start of the 2019 season. He's played eight total uh, hard court majors. How many wins do you think he has at those eight majors? You mean? How Five. many people did he beat? Yeah, how many total wins at his past eight hard court majors? Because here's um, some math for you that you'll like. Well, let's, uh, let's see. He won one of them, so that's seven, and he's got to the finals of the Australian, so that's 13. Uh, beyond that, I'm, I, I'm, I'm struggling to recall. So the answer is 39. 39 okay. wins at his last eight majors. You do the math there, that's averaging five majors a win, that uh, wins a major he's and that makes sense by the way because he's made eight second weeks made the round of 16 in all eight he's five and zero in the five quarterfinals that he's played to your point he's won a u.s open title he was up two sets to love two one love 40 on rafa on the precipice of that australian open title last year he's 159 and 43 on hard courts overall since the start of 2019 that's an 80% win percentage. And you look at the stats for him last season, I bring up those top 10, 15, 20, 25 clubs, even in a year that by many will be considered a down year for Medvedev. There were two guys who finished top 10 in both how frequently they held serve, how frequently they broke serve last year. 
One of them was Djokovic, who's the unequivocal number one on this list. The other was Medvedev, who like, yeah, he lost to Djokovic in Adelaide. That's a really tough matchup. And that's why it's Djokovic's slam to lose. But physically, this guy's just another planet. When Medvedev first broke through to the tip top, I think that was the year he was giving fans the finger at the U.S. Open. Uh, um, I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Ugliest strokes to reach the top of the tour, maybe ever. He looks like a stork. He looks like somebody wandered in from the basketball court onto a public court. And this can't be that hard. And he's freaking whacking the ball all weird. And it took and 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 he really rubbed me the wrong way because you know when you look at Fed and Djokovic and Nadal, there's part of it is the the beauty of hitting the ball in this beautiful way, and Medvedev is the absolute opposite and gives you none of that visual pleasure, and I so I was so upset even the year he won the U.S. Open, I had seats I had tickets I always go to the U.S open he he was like the third match of the day and i was like fuck medvedev he's ugly i don't want to watch him let's go to louis armstrong and i walked out of his i think it was his quarterfinal match because i'm like i don't want to watch like what an idiot because months after that actually i think with the destruction of djokovic i started to come around and see really before he makes contact or at least just through contact he's pretty straightforward he's pretty relatively traditional now the follow-throughs and the twisties he gets into after he makes contact that's weird right that that's where he deviates from traditional technique um into like you know well now i'm just playing twister or something but like you know the rest before that he's he's fine um and he's he's brilliant and just watching him a guy that big cover the court that way um, can be quite thrilling. So I have come around to a deep appreciation of him where, you know, which is not a journey that I needed for most of the players I love, but now I see the value in him. I think he's a better Chilich. Like, he just moves so well sure. for his size. The fluidity is laughable. And then he's six six and has a bomb of a surf as well. It's just like, I, I, it, yeah, it, it defies logic at times. I think he's got to be at the list. I want to throw one more name at you and then a rapid fire. Um, FAA would be the other one. And just a reminder, since the end of the U.S. Open, Felix Ogier-Aliassime, 23-6 and six overall, 79% win percentage. Whenever you're in the high 70s, low 80 range, that's elite of the elite. Now it's only a two-month run. But during that stretch, he's held serve 92.6% of the time. That would rank number one if extended for a full season amongst the ATP players. And just like the serve, the forehand, they are elite weapons. Physically, there are times he's on another planet. I think it's going to happen eventually. And like because there's such a gap between Djokovic and the rest of the field, in my opinion, if someone's going to get hot, why not Felix? I mean, I love him. The opposite of Medvedev in terms of watching him is just pure joy. From the first time I saw him, I'm like, that's the way you're supposed to hit the ball. That's what you would teach juniors if you could teach them perfect form. Um, You know, and I I do look a little bit like him. I once I tweet somebody, I went to one of his outer court matches at the US Open a couple years ago. And somebody asked me if I was related to him. 
And I just said, yeah, just just to end the conversation. <laughs> and I was and then my mind started to run and I tweeted a, a, a story that I went to the FAA match. Somebody asked me if I was uh, related to him. I said, I'm his father. And I signed autographs TAA and everybody was happy. And Kim Kleister's tweeted back at me like, did this really happen? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the story, like, this, is, this is great. I, this is a I, great day. I do have to go to the U S open with you is what I'm. Oh my God. Here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is, this is the easily the, the greatest, um, but yes, but it's also the greatest value in terms of sports, right? You go to a football, basketball, baseball game, your favorite player might get injured or thrown out or just having an off night. Ten, you go to the U.S. Open or or the French Open or what have you, like, you don't love the match you're watching. There's another great one over there and over there. And, like, you know, it's just – it's so thrilling to, like, sit at the U.S. Open all day long and watch all these great matches. And the U.S. Open crowd is so intense. I think I, I want FAA to break through to that top level of getting to semis and finals and winning uh, slams. We'll see. I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. We haven't quite seen that tip top gear from him, but he's been making an ascent. You know, I like watching Holger Rune hit the ball. I like the way that he goes about things on the court. I like watching him. I don't know if he's ready yet to get to the top three win. I mean, like, really, the rankings don't matter to me. Right. I want to see win majors. Get to Sundays, win majors. Then I'm like, okay, now I'm I'm plugged into you, and I care about. You. I mean, you know, Alcaraz is such an amazing player to watch, right? And obviously, we're not going to get to watch him this year at the Open, the Australian Open, but like, just a joy to watch. I watched him and Sinner at the U.S. Open last year, and and part of the, one of the things about the U.S. Open around ten thirty. Most of the people with money have uh, jobs have left and people who have more flexible time are still there. And so wherever you started, you can basically be in the front row or the second row by 10, 11 o'clock. And like that match went on to like two or three in the morning and it was epic. And it was like, it was one of the greatest tennis experiences that I've ever had. So yeah, I, you know, I love that kid. Yeah. No, I mean, Yes, to all of the above. Very well said. Um, I am so jealous. One of my college my college doubles partner in my club tennis team was at Sinner Alcaraz, and I was like, of course you're there. Like, of course you had the chance to be up there. And let's be clear, Sinner had a match point. Like, there's a world where the past four months, everything we've said about Alcaraz, we'd be saying about Sinner. So with that in mind, rapid fire with you. I'm going to throw names at you. I can give you a stat if you want it, and you're you're implored to do more than just rapid here. But you tell me the round you think this player is going to get to at the 2023. Well, I have to look at the draw, right? I mean, well, no draw yet, so we're just having fun again. Pure speculation. Let's. No one's. Don't worry. No one's going to remember. It's. This is what you. The gem you give to people who make it 47 minutes. Okay. All right. Here we go. Berrettini. In or out? Like Berrettini a lot. Big, huge guy. Depends on who he's got. Maybe a fourth quarters somewhere in there. Probably not past quarters this time. 
I know he likes it better when it's faster, but I think there's six or seven guys ahead of him that may block him from the quarters. Sitsi pass. I think he's definitely a quarters guy. I think he's starting to show that he's a quarters, maybe semis guy, but doesn't get past that. At least, you know, I know he did like at least once, but like you're starting to wonder, maybe this guy won't become a slam champion. Maybe he'll be one of those like greatest to never win a slam sort of guys. It's crazy how quickly we are ready to move past these Virev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Berrettini, Rublev generation. Just get right into Alcaraz, Sinner, Runa, like Felix and be like, let's just enjoy these even younger guys who are so good as well. I mean, I I love Rublev. I watched his documentary that was like translated from Russian, where we learned that his mother is one of the great coaches in Moscow. So like, I was like, oh, I, I start to get it. Like why this is all worked out for you. Um, again, I don't know if we're going to see him win a slam. You you start to think like, like the, the 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 big three generation ruled like let's say three generations right like it was ridiculous right and they're still dominant the last two are still dominant figures so they crowded out that next generation and Tsitsipas and them will get so old relatively your age but on the tour that starts to get old that the younger generation is able to usurp them that's sort of the narrative that I start to you're starting to see, I think, that, you know, and maybe in a year we'll reconvene and like, oh, that didn't play out. But like, I wonder if like the Alcarazes and Sinners will rise up and start winning majors when Nadal and Djokovic really can't do it anymore. And they'll skip over that uh, Tsitsipas, Rublev generation. Like they were like, we, you know, we couldn't get it because they were great. And we couldn't get it because, you know, they were great. And the youngers were great. The olders were great. Maybe. Yeah, no, it, it's fascinating. It will be interesting to watch. All right, last two before I let you go. Fritz, you think he's ready to win a slam? No, no, no. Corda? No, no, no. I think Fritz is an interesting example of, and Medvedev is the example perhaps that proves the rule, that you can be too tall for elite tennis. And I think after 6'5", 6'6", Above that, Medvedev, obviously, again, obviously, it, just just the level of movement that is required at the tip-top level begins to escape you. And I think we see a lot of guys who are super tall, who excel in part of the game that gets them to 15 in the world around there, 10 in the world maybe, but like can't excel on other things to get to five and above and and one of the one of the key players that comes to mind with that is like an isner right who like holds serve at something like like 94 95 something ridiculous like that like he's like one of the top three in holding serve in his generation but he's also losing serve at almost the exact same rate right so like if he's not serving he's lost like he right i mean like if you couldn't hold serve at a 95% rate then you would be top you'd be 200 right if you're losing serve that that much um so it's like he he is this one part of his game that is extraordinary but perhaps because of the height he's limited in in getting the other parts to that same extraordinary level and if um i think fritz is in that group and uh opelka's in that group 
of like, you know, I'll, I'll be 12, I'll be 10, maybe. Am I going to get to 5, 4, 3? No. Yeah, I, I disagree. This is this would be like a big, I mean, we'll say this for a different time, but like Medvedev, Zverev, Felix, Tsitsipas, Korda, like Hercots, Veratini. These guys are six foot six, but they move like they're six foot, six one, six two, and it's this new generation of athletes. I think the future of the ATP tour is about this size. The fact that there are these guys who not only can play the standard ground stroke, like again, Medvedev is known as a defensive player. He's finished top ten in hold percentage the last four years, and it's because he's six six and when you're six six, you take, can just slap one thirty a little easier. Take did take Medvedev out of it because he's an athletic freak, right? Sure. You know, it's interesting you say the, the this this development you're talking about because, like, sure, naturally the tour may get bigger. I mean, like I met Rod Laver once. The tour grows and grows and grows. I've I've spoken to John McEnroe and I've been in the same room with Federer and Nadal. Like it's it's a different size of human being, height, width, these sort of things. We did see this play out a little bit in the history of the women's game, right? Where you had like the Hengis era where small, smart, quick, agile was dominant. And then the Lindsay Davenport, Venus era came and you had, right, Celis. And it was like, you know, what, what was Pam Schreiber and Marie, Mary uh, Carrillo talking about big babes, right? The big babes era, right? And... That I mean, like you, you know, that sort of di- it didn't that did not continue, right? Like they didn't got bigger and bigger. Like they then went down, and yeah, you see a rise of some taller guys. But I'm talking about can you get to the tip top of tennis? I think there's a height that starts to prevent you from getting not to ten, but to like three, not to not to Thursday, but to Sunday, like. It, you know, in, in, in the in the four weekends that matter, like that, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I mean, only two guys made the second week of every major last year. It was Nadal and it was Sinner. And obviously Djokovic would have been on that list had he been able yeah. to play every major. But yeah. like there's something too. again, I always say getting, you know, a kid on our team used to always joke, you can't win the tournament in round number one, but you can always lose it. And, like, not losing is half the battle. And that's why I always like to look at stats like your record against players ranked outside the top 20, records against players ranked outside the top 50. Can you beat who you're supposed to beat? That's why, again, when I look at my list, Djokovic beats who he's supposed to beat. Medvedev does that. That's why he's second. Yeah. Nadal's three to me because I think he's a little bit injured, a little bit past. Or it just I don't think he's going to be able to summon the level he needs. And Djokovic is in the draw, which just I mean, wasn't this, the case. This is to, to what you're saying... Kyrgios is a great sort of example of sure. like he beats guys ranked above him more than anybody else. But if he would beat the guys ranked below him like he's supposed to, then he would be ranked with these other guys. And Absolutely. you wouldn't be like, oh, he's beating guys above his head. Well, because on Saturday he'll play out of his mind. But on Tuesday he's like, I don't care about you. I'm going to fuck <laughs> around. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And again, that is literally half the battle is just not fucking around in round number two and round number four and then you know after the big fourth round when you got to refocus for the quarterfinals and yeah that's half the struggle and so again it's gonna be fascinating to see in what feels like a a slightly more crowded uh top 10 and really you know second tier of players with i think a lot of guys not the first tier the first tier tier is still novak 
I think yeah. Medvedev having won a slam earns the right to be there. Nadal certainly as well. But that second tier, like Felix is rising. You know, Berrettini just constantly gets to quarterfinals. That's what he does. Sinner constantly in that second week mix. And guys like Nori, who's a really tough out, his floor as high as anyone, even if the ceiling isn't there. And then you have the high variance guys like a Shapovalov, who you feel like on the right day, he can be money. Kyrgios you know, I, can be money. I love watching him play. He's so explosive. The way he moves. I also love his thought process in terms of I'm going to serve way out wide over and over. Don't care if you know that's where it's going. You're going to start the point in the doubles alley and good luck from there. Uh-huh. And see, that's part of what I'm talking about. To loop back, you that does not come into a baseline game at all. That like sure. that I serve out wide and make you do that or that I started in the doubles alley and had to recover from that. And just the shape of the strokes sure. after that start um, but I I love Chapo and the just the way he moves, the explosive legs, the curve of the of his strokes and his top spin and he's just the twitchiest um, athlete. Like the quick yeah. twitch, the explosiveness, yeah. he's got it. And it's just cra- and like and yet he isn't compromised on his feel. Like he actually sometimes he can explode through a slice far too much, but then you see the soft hands. You see that he's a good volleyer, knows where to go, what oh, to yeah. do, which is half the like battle. I said I did a pod well, I haven't done it yet, but I alluded to it of who is twenty twenty three a make or break year for. Chapo, I think, turns twenty three, maybe twenty four this year. It's make or break in the sense that he has been this captivating but inconsistent talent for about seven years. And I think eight years is where I plant my foot down and say, okay, this is just who he is. But like if he but he's still young enough that this year, if he can just give me I don't need even the full season, but just like three months, give me three consecutive, good, consistent months of play. Not the I'm going to beat Rafa and lose seven straight like he did last year. That's what I need to see out of Chapo in 2023. Yeah, I mean, you know, I love that guy. You yeah, know, he's compelling. He, your heart, your heart goes to him, and I feel like we've seen him. You know, I feel like when you notice that the box has changed, it's like you know you've been around for a while. It was always mom in the box. Now it's mom doesn't travel so much anymore. It's a girlfriend in the box. You know, just even like the similar the way we saw Serena's box change over time. The way you saw Federer's box get larger and larger with all those twins over time, um, you know that's always a fun part of like growing with these guys. But yeah, I mean, you know, look, I think Alcaraz has proven that he is one of the tip top players in the world. Mm-hmm. But well, he's yeah, obviously like the, he's the big one who would be on this list if he was out. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. But I, I, w- I want to see him do it again. Are you yeah. going to? win the French Open? Are you going to, you know, win another U.S. Open? Like, you know, I I, I want to see you do it again so we can really say, okay, yeah, you are, there is now a top three, including Alcaraz. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really well said. Well, with all that in mind, you've given me far more time than I asked for, which I am very much appreciative of. And I want to ask any final thoughts as you look at this Australian Open, any things we didn't cover, any things you need to plug? Um, well, I wrote a book that folks might like called the Ivy League Counterfeiter. It's about a friend of mine I went to high school with who grew up to become a professional counterfeiter. Okay. Um, and I got a podcast called Torre Show. Um, 
we're, you know, we've had, you know, the podcast focuses on um, successful black people, but when it comes to tennis, I've been like anybody I can get in tennis, I'll talk to. Um, so we've talked to James Blake, Taylor Townsend, Chris Eubanks. Um, did I say James Blake? But we've also talked to Andy Roddick, um, you know, because uh, I I interviewed him a couple of times early in his career and late in his career. And he's a, a buddy, um, uh, Katrina Adams as well, Zena Garrison as well. So, I mean, you know, but like Roddick had like nothing to do with my purview, but I'm like, I'm talking to the former number one player in the world. Like I have a platform. I don't care if it doesn't fit with the thesis. So, you know, all those episodes are there. I think they're really, really interesting. The Roddick episode and the Blake episode are both really, really good. Um, so yeah, you can Google and find that on uh Tory show and, Thanks for the time, and I can't wait to uh, hit some balls with you one day. You are always welcome back on this show. Be safe, be healthy, and yeah, well, maybe we'll have to talk to you after. You want to get? Oh, I can't let you go without this. One last thing: predictions. Let's start on the men's side. Who wins it? I, I mean, like you know, you you hate to. I mean, like you know, if I had to put down on one, I'd say on Djokovic. I mean, right? I mean, like he's. He, the guy's a machine. He's he's a little bit better than Nadal, probably. He's better than everybody else. There may be a bit of a chip on the shoulder after last year. Not mad at the Australians so much as I need to reassert and make sure all you guys know I'm still the alpha dog here. Um, and you know, I don't I don't know that rude or anybody else outside of medvedev or nadal is really going to give him a, a, a challenge um you know so i mean you know but I, I mean like you know i look forward to waking up at 2 or 3 a.m on one soon sunday hmm. and watching nadal and djokovic battle to the death for five or six hours that'll be uh that'll be a thrill mm-hmm. women's side oh see you know you didn't you didn't ask me to prepare for this i well, this is spur of the moment. This is when the real predictions come out. Um, hold on, let's see. Let me look at let me look at the draw. So the answer is uh, not just an unequivocal ego. Well, you know, you start to wonder when does when do you fall to earth? You know, like do you come back to earth? You know, I want to see Coco break through. I think that'll happen. She's got such a huge heart. Um, I love Sakari. I get so wrapped up in, she posts all these workout videos on Instagram and she's a monster with sort of workout stuff she does. I love watching that stuff. Um, I mean, you know, just looking at these names on paper, Iga Swiatek, I think we're saying the name wrong. Uh, has, uh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, she, um, I mean, you know, she seems to be head and shoulders above the others. But, I mean, between Jabor and Pegula, I mean, I'm like, you you really think they can't get it done? You really think that Coco Goff couldn't get it done? I mean, like, I think they could. I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to watch it all unfold. And, again, maybe we'll have to have you back on afterwards to talk about how it all broke down. But Love to. Very much appreciate you taking the time. Be safe. Be healthy. It's too late for Happy New Year, but I'll throw it in anyways, and hopefully we will talk to you again soon. Yes, indeed, Alex. Thank you.